All right, so we're going to start by talking about some of the greatest speeches in history. Well, at least in English history. I, I don't know speeches in Chinese history and Korean history or whatever. I'm sure there's some great ones. But in English history, what's probably the most famous speech? Probably the Gettysburg Address, right? That's up there. Four score and seven years ago. I saw a cartoon the other day that was the Gettysburg Address, and it was him, like, standing with his notes, and it said, open with a joke, and then that was scratched off, you know? <laughs> and it said four score and seven years ago. Um, what's another most famous? I, when I said, what's the most famous? I think it's a tie between two speeches in American history. Gettysburg Address and I Have a Dream. Um, did anybody see that movie about how they made... Um, uh, they got Jordan to sign with Nike when Nike was a nothing little company. Uh, what was that movie called with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck? Anyway, though it was not that interesting of a movie. But the interesting part of that movie was just like some random guy in the middle of the movie, and this is totally true, was like talking to one of those guys, and he just says, oh, yeah, I have the notes. He gave me his notes from that speech. Like some guy has it, and he like won't give it to museums and stuff. He's turned down millions of dollars for the notes to the I Have a Dream speech. Um, that's another fantastic speech. Churchill's uh, I, We Will Never Surrender. Right? We'll fight on the beaches. We'll fight in the whatever. That guy was like a master of language. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe 20 whiskeys a day will do that to a guy. But uh, Kennedy had a pretty good one. Yeah, that one. Kennedy had two. He had the, the, the ask, ask not, you know. <laughs> I saw comedians the other day say, I wonder if they all got really drunk one day and started talking like that and then just decided to keep it going because <laughs> nobody talks like that. But anyway, yeah, so there's that one. And then he also had the one, you know, uh, we're going to the moon by the end of the decade. That speech was pretty great. Um, uh, there's a bone chilling. It's not really a speech exactly, <coughs> but um, like American president speech is um, Bush standing on the rubble at 9-11 is a pretty like when they shouted, we can't hear you. And he goes, well, pretty, what did he say? Pretty soon everybody's going to hear you, you know, something like that. And into the megaphone, um, Obama's speech at the 2000 and what would that be? Four, uh, convention that put him on the map. Um, that speech basically ended Hillary's political career because <laughs> it made sure she would probably never be president. There's some pretty important speeches, right? In like American, uh, in American, you know, or at least English history. Um, today's sermon is, interestingly, I think more important than any of those speeches, the speech we're about to read today. And what we're going to read today is a sermon that will launch a movement that will reach far wider than any of those other movements, right? So uh, the Gettysburg Address and, like, you know, the American... Uh, bringing America back together, that whole thing, all the Kennedy speeches, those other ones, whatever. Like all those are kind of confined to us in the West or us in America. But this speech that we're about to read launched the Christian movement. This was like the inaugural address for the Christian movement. And after this, there was no putting the genie back in the bottle kind of a thing. And so um, let me do a quick recap of what we've read already in Acts 1 and 2. So first... Um, Jesus tells the yeah there you go. Jesus tells the disciples after the resurrection. He gets them all together and he says, "Look, I need you to go to Jerusalem. I need you to wait for the the Holy Spirit is going to come." And they say, "Okay." Then he ascends into heaven and he's taken up into the cloud of glory. Then they go back to Jerusalem and they're praying and they decide we need to replace Judas. So we read that whole passage. Uh, then 
Acts chapter 2 opens, and the Holy Spirit falls on this group of people in this powerful way. And we talked about the tongues of fire and the symbolism of that from the Old Testament. The temple now would rest in the Holy Spirit in each one of these people that had the very presence of God. Last week what we did was we talked about the crowd in, um, that was in Jerusalem and how they were from everywhere. And last week we talked about missionary movements and world missions and the church's uh, mandate to spread the gospel kind of all over and how this event was the spark of it. Now today what we're going to read is the actual sermon. Um, <clears throat> last week I went long. I'm going to try to go shorter today for two reasons, because I owe you 10 minutes and also because uh, I don't know how long I can talk here. So let's read this together. We've got a lot of verses to cover, um, uh, but hopefully the end will be shorter. Let's see what happens here. All right, verse 14. But Peter... Standing up with the eleven, lifted his voice and addressed them. And he said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. So Peter, again, is the clear leader of the early church, the early apostles. He's there. He's the guy. In Acts 1, he steps up and he says, we need to replace Judas. Uh, in Acts 2, he's the guy giving the speech. But it says here he stands up with the 11. That's important. Peter wasn't standing up on his own authority. He was standing up on the authority of all 12 of these, these apostles, right? These are the, the men who, who were the foundation of the church. And I love that the first announcement that they ever have to make in the church is that we're not drunk. I think that's funny. So the Spirit falls. Last week and the week before, we, we read about this. The Spirit falls on them, and they're speaking in tongues, and they're speaking in languages they don't know. So some guy from Parthia or some guy from Rome or whatever, they were all there uh, from North Africa, from some islands. They were all there hearing the gospel preached in their own languages. And some people got up and said, well, these guys must be drunk. So it says some of them were interested, the other ones they thought they might be drunk. So the first thing Peter says is, guys, we're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. That's what the third hour uh, means. And I hate their numbering system because that means their day starts at 6 a.m. And I don't like that that's in the Bible. But anyway. <clears throat> uh, and so what he says, though, is we're not drunk like you think. Um, we aren't under the influence of booze, but we are under the influence. That's what he's saying, basically. We, you know... We're not filled with wine, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, he's going to then, now that he's kind of cleared that up, he's going to preach a sermon. And his sermon has three parts, okay? The first part is, the prophet Joel told us that all of this would happen. The Part two is, the fulfillment is all because of Jesus, right? And then part three is what we're going to read next week, is how to respond to this information. So today we're not reading the response. Today I'll give you a sneak peek. Next week, a bunch of people, 3,000 people come to faith, and it's this amazing moment in the life of the church. Today, though, all we're reading is the sermon that Peter preaches. So let's keep going. So part one here, uh, Joel told us that all this would happen. So his, um, his sermon is based off of a text uh, from the book of Joel. So watch this. Uh, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he's about to quote Joel 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses uh, 28 through 32. And do you remember from Wednesday night what the Septuagint is? Brownie points. Who knows what the Septuagint is? Shout it out. Greek Old Testament. Greek Old Testament. Yeah. So what he's quoting here is the Septuagint. And what's interesting is some of it he's quoting and some of it he's kind of paraphrasing the Septuagint. So it'd be like if I got up and I said, you know that verse where Paul says, 
for, you know, like all the stuff I want to do, I never do it. That's kind of what he's doing here. That's not the exact quote of the verse. Part of it is, but part of it's not. So he quotes this and the context of the quote from Joel. So Joel is this weird little book and it talks about these locust invasions and all this stuff. It's actually a cool little book. And it's a message of Joel from, he's the prophet of God to the people of the Northern kingdom of Israel. And the Lord says, things are hard now, but one day in this quote, one day I'm going to pull out, pour out my spirit upon you and the day of the Lord will come. And that day will involve judgment for some and joy and grace for others. That's the, the context of the quote. And so what Peter says here is he's going to basically take this quote and say, that's what you're looking at. So let's read the rest of this. Uh, this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. Uh, and it shall be in the last days, God declares. So this is actually interesting. This is one of the things Peter changes. Uh, in the actual quote from Joel, all it says is, and afterwards it shall be, God declares. But Peter adds the phrase. He, he, in his paraphrase, he adds something to the quote from Joel. He says that this is the last days. Now, um, because Peter knew something. Pentecost was day one of what the Bible calls the end times, or the last days, or the day of the Lord. That day has been here. Uh, and as the rest of the New Testament writers agree, will last until the second coming of Christ. So we're living in the last days. We're living in the end times, uh, in, at the day of the Lord. And one of the illustrations pastors always use, I don't know who first came up with this, but every pastor has used this. And I was actually at a conference one time when a pastor used this illustration, and then the next guy got up and said, man, I was going to say that thing that the last guy said, and it, I think it was this same illustration. But you know, uh, for those of you who are history buffs, you know D-Day? When was D-Day? June. Wasn't it 6th, I think? Sounds right. I'm guessing. I think it was June 6th. 44? Anyway, D-Day. All the guys get on some boats. All the Allied troops. <coughs> they head across the English Channel, and they storm the beaches uh, in, what was that be, like western, kind of northwestern France. And it was this massive invasion. And you can see it in, uh, what's that movie? Saving Private Ryan. There's scenes from it in Band of Brothers. Once D-Day was over, so the day after D-Day, the European war was basically over. Once all those troops landed and we had, the Allies had supply lines. I say we like I was there, but I don't know, my grandparents were there. Uh, like supply lines back to Britain. Everybody knew that the Germans and the Axis powers, they had no chance of survival. But they still had to fight the rest of the war. They had to fight it out. And Hitler was stubborn, and he refused to surrender, right? And then he eventually killed himself in the bunker. But basically, as soon as D-Day happened, the war was over. But it was still like over a year until that actual surrender. And what the illustration is, that the end times is kind of like that. It started. D-Day's happened. Everybody knows it's over. Everybody knows the enemy's going to lose and what's going to happen, and that the church is going to be triumphant. Right? But we're living in the in-between victory day when Jesus comes back and D-Day, when the troops have landed and everybody knows the war is over. And so Peter, understanding that this day that he's standing in right here um, at Pentecost in whatever year this was, he stands up and he goes, D-Day's over, right? Like the troops have landed and now we're living in the last times. And so he flushes this out. He says, in the last days it shall be... Uh, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. 
Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So that's intentional language, pouring out the spirit. It's a Hebrew idiom. And the idea was to make you think of the spirit flowing over you, like falling into a river and having the water flow over you. It's also picked up when Jesus uses the language of being Sorry, of being baptized with the Spirit. That's the idea here, is the Spirit flowing over you. And Peter is saying, when this language from the book of Joel, the Spirit flowing over you and being poured out, is what you're seeing right here. And I love the universality of uh, the language here. Look at this. He says, uh, who gets the Spirit? All flesh. So that means all kinds of people, sons and daughters, young men, old men, uh, male servants and female servants. This is just kind of a, a way, a catch-all to say there's nobody who is not going to be able to get the Spirit. Every different kind of person. Nobody's going to say, well, I was born into this situation or I'm from this racial group or whatever it is. Everybody is going to receive the Holy Spirit. And <coughs> that's, uh, that's what we're seeing right now in Acts chapter 2. Who's the group that's receiving the Holy Spirit? Right? It's the apostles, but who else is it? It's all the women, right? It's the 50 different Marys. Uh, there's like Martha, you know, it's this whole gang. They're all there, the apostles, the disciples that weren't apostles, right? All of them. And this was a really countercultural idea in the, the Roman world. If you would have looked at this group of 120, there was probably Mark's mom who owned the house with the upper room. She was probably very wealthy. Then you have more middle-class people like Peter and James and those guys, you had Matthew, who's an ex-tax collector. He stinks, right? And then you probably had a bunch of poorer folks as well. Men, women, older, younger, rich, poor. The only thing that this hasn't jumped yet is from Jew to Gentile. This is all still a group of Jewish people. That story is the rest of the book of Acts, how what happens here jumps from Jews to Gentiles as well. And so Peter quoting this, he's quoting, he's saying, look at the universality of this. And then verse 19 and I will show sign, uh, wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor and smoke. Uh, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So he says on the one side, you have people when the, the spirit is poured out and the day of the Lord comes. For one group of people, they're going to get grace and they're going to get mercy and love and joy. But on the flip side of that is this is all language of judgment. Uh, apocalyptic judgment language. So he says on the other side of the coin is the people who are not going to be happy that the day of the Lord has come, right? Um, <clears throat> there's two sides to this. And so how then, in the middle of the sermon, you're supposed to ask, how then can people be sure that they're on the side that receives the good and not the scary stuff? How do I get the mercy and not the judgment? And that's what he says here. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he's already defined salvation. It's the presence of God. It's being with the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, in the absence of the judgment that you've deserved. Now, the method of salvation is by calling on the name of the Lord. Now, here's the catch. He's talking to a bunch of devout Jewish people who are in Jerusalem for the, fe the, the festival of Pentecost. And while these people are here, they don't know the whole Jesus story. Right. Well, maybe they know some of it, but they're not immediately thinking when he says everybody who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. They're not thinking everybody who calls in the name of Jesus will be saved. So if you were one of the original hearers of this sermon, the, the right here, you would stop and you would raise your hand 
and Peter would call on you, and then you would say, who's the Lord? Who are you talking about? They didn't know who he was talking about. And so the rest of his sermon is going to be answering that question. He's going to tell us about Jesus' life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, his uh, ascension and exaltation. Right, so he's going to give us these few things. So let's check it out. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. So now he's telling us who this is. Who, who is this Lord that we call on to be saved? Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. So look at this. The first thing he tells them is, hear these words. Let's say, Jesus of Nazareth, he describes him as a man. That's the first thing. I think this is important. We forget this. If you had a time machine and you went back in time and you walked into a crowd and you knew Jesus was in that crowd, you would have to ask somebody, which one is Jesus? He didn't glow, right? Or like all the pictures with the halo behind his head. He was just like some guy that started preaching. And then even his brothers went, I think he's nuts because he, he's going around telling everybody he's God. And then one time I beat him at tic-tac-toe you know, or something like everybody that knew him well, just thought of him as some guy. I think that's important. He was a regular man, but then at the same time, he wasn't a regular man because when his ministry started, it became very clear. He's not just some guy. He started doing these signs and wonders, these miracles. Think about some of the miracles we read about in Luke and you can read about in the other gospels. Jesus turns water into wine. Right? That's a pretty... And it says specifically he did that so the disciples... It was like a sign for the disciples. Feeding 5,000 people. You know who saw him do that? 5,000 people. Actually, more than that, because it was like 5,000 guys. <coughs> and then the word got around. Man, he's fed all these people with just some loaves and fishes. And then you know what he did? He said, watch me, I'll do it again. And then he did it again. He fed 4,000 people. So think about that. He's done that twice. One time he was out on the storm on the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and he gets up from his nap, by the way, and he says, hey, storm, cut it out. I'm trying to sleep. And then the storm just stops. Again, we're paraphrasing some of these miracles here. Uh, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Peter was like, shoot. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Kathy. <laughs> no, yeah, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. That's pretty cool. She had the fever. Um, he's healing lepers and blind people. Remember the guy they dropped through the roof that couldn't walk? Like, there's so many of these stories, you can't even remember them all. But then three of them really stand out. There were three people he raised from the dead. There was the widow's son when they were bringing him out in the coffin uh, at the town of Nain. Then there was Jairus' daughter, who was dead. And then not in the Gospel of Luke that we read together, but in the Gospel of John, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And you know who was there to see him raise Lazarus from the dead? Everybody. It was like a huge crowd of people. And so word of that spread. And so what Peter says is this guy did all of these signs and these wonders, these mighty works and wonders and signs. Um, there's no difference really between those three. He's just trying to say the same thing with emphasis, you know. And he says, you know, because you guys heard about this stuff. Everybody saw him do these things. Most of this stuff wasn't done in a closet. These were public miracles. Think about the crowd at the raising of Lazarus, of the 5,000. So Peter says, you guys know that this Jesus wasn't just some guy. He looked like just some guy. But once his ministry started, it became very clear that he wasn't just some dude. And so what did you guys do? This is Peter's next question. Right? You have this guy, he's healing people, he's doing all these wonderful signs. What did you do 
now that you knew who he was, that it was becoming clear that he was the Messiah. This Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the first thing he says is this Jesus. This is important. Peter is saying it's not a twin. Right? Remember we talked about that? Some people are like, he probably had a twin, like that movie The Prestige. I spoiled it. Came out in 2006 or something. You'll be fine. Um, he wasn't snatched away or something. It really was him. This Jesus was crucified. You remember we read about crucifixion. We talked, I'm not going to get into it now, but we talked a lot about this when we finished the Gospel of Luke, towards the end of the Gospel of Luke, how brutal and humiliating of a death this was. This was the worst death that a Jewish man could uh, fear, right? Like that anybody could do to somebody like this. Because not only was it brutally painful and excruciating, which is actually the word that means like from the cross, uh, it was excruciating death. It was also shameful, right, in an honor-shame culture. This is what you guys did to him. But Peter, you just told him, you just told us that he was a man of God. How could this happen to him, right? How could God let this happen if he really was a man of God? And that's what Peter answers here. It was all part of God's plan all along. I said this when we did the Gospel of Luke. Jesus didn't trip and fall and land on the cross, right? The whole thing from since before the creation of the world, this was the plan for God to redeem mankind, right? It says it right there. Look at the, the strong language that Peter uses. He, he was delivered up according to the definite plan. That means there's absolutely no way that the cross was not going to happen in foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan all along. Jesus even said this a bunch of times. He kept saying, look, I'm going to die. This is the reason I came was to die, right? To, as a ransom for all is what he says, right? And so there's this tension though, because Peter says, but you crucified him. So the implication here is you're responsible for this. But at the same time, it was God's plan all along. And the Bible never, right? The scriptures never pit the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of mankind against each other. The scriptures always present those two things like they're both definitely true. And so in the same breath, Peter says that G the death of Jesus was God's plan. And then he's yelling at the crowd, this was God's plan, but you guys did it. And you should feel bad. And so that leads to the question, though. Okay, so he was murdered. How could he be the Messiah if he was executed at the hands of lawless men? Because God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Um, Jesus was resurrected. We don't say that Jesus was resuscitated. Lazarus was resuscitated. The son of the widow at Nain and Jairus' daughter, they were resuscitated. And what I mean by that is not, they came back to life, but then they died again. Right? I, I think I did Lazarus at some point with our church. I've done it a few times all over. And I, I always think about this when I read that story, that I bet Lazarus woke up and went, oh man, I got to do this life a little bit more before I get to the next one. Because <laughs> like, dying stinks, right? I'm guessing. I haven't done it yet. I'm working on it. <laughs> but, you know, dying is not great. And Lazarus died and came back to life, and then he had to die again. Jesus, he died once, but he was resurrected. And there's a difference. Resurrection is entering that new eternal body, right? The perfect body that will last into eternity, and so Jesus isn't going to die again. And what Peter says is that resurrection is the proof that he was the Messiah. 
because death could not hold him. Now, let me explain to you real quick how this works. Um, in order for Jesus, in order for somebody to be the substitute for fallen humanity, that person, that redeemer, has to not be sinful the way that we are. One of us can't be the redeemer for everybody else. And so Jesus is that redeemer because he was sinless. And one of the ways we know he was sinless is because of the virgin birth, right? He, he wasn't passed on the sin nature. That's what the Bible tells us, the way that everybody else inherits that sin nature. And so Jesus grew up sinless. He lived a sinless life, and then he died. Now, the Bible also tells us that the wages of sin is death, meaning when somebody who is sinful dies, that's what they get, and they stay dead. But what would happen if somebody who was sinless didn't, um, somebody who was sinless were to die? Death couldn't hold him. Death has no right over him, and so he would be resurrected. And that's what we're told is that um, God raised him up because of that. And so Jesus coming back to life in a resurrection body is proof that he actually was sinless. It's proof that he was the one, the only person in human history who could be our sacrifice, the one who could do the great exchange. And that's Peter's point here. The resurrection shows us uh, that uh, Jesus is the Messiah. And then to continue on this theme, he quotes now from uh, Psalm 16. Let's read this. Uh, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. So this is a quote from Psalm 116, verses 8 through 11. And David says in the psalm, basically paraphrasing, because of the Lord, I'm not afraid of death anymore. And then verse 27 here is kind of the most important verse. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. So he's quoting this. He said, you will not, I'll read that again. Abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So in verse 27, he says, look, you're not, David is writing this psalm and he says, you're not going to let your Holy One see corruption. Basically, David says, when I die, you're not going to let me rot in the grave. That's what he's saying. Here's the problem with that. Peter explains this, though. He goes, Brothers, I may say to you that with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So Peter takes this quote from the Psalms where David says, When I die, you're not going to let me stay dead. And he goes, That couldn't have been about himself. That had to be a prophecy. Because we know David died. You can read about it uh, in the book of Kings. You can go read it, and David dies, and then they buried him, and his tomb is right over there. You can go see it, and um, apparently the tomb was somewhere in Jerusalem. We don't really know where this was now. So he must have then been talking about somebody else. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would uh, set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he would not abandon Uh, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And so Peter's point here is this, that David was an inspired prophet. And he knew because of 2 Samuel 7 that God had told him, someday one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne. Right? I'm going to build you a house. It's that whole chapter. And so when David was writing this psalm, he, he realized that the Messiah would come, he would die, and he would be resurrected. And so Peter is trying to show that not only... It's not that Jesus' death disqualifies him from being the Messiah, but actually his death and his resurrection was the plan the whole time. It's proof that he is the Messiah. But now the crowd must have been wondering, okay, fine. 
Jesus died and he rose again. Where is he? Haven't, why doesn't he come tell us about this? And what Peter says, he's going to tell us about the ascension and exaltation. But also he says, we are witnesses. Look at this. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Now, we've talked before in church about plausibility structures. You guys remember this? Probably not. <clears throat> so there's this great book um, that I want to do sometime with our church. It's called um, How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. It's a great book. And it's written by this Australian pastor named Sam Chan. And uh, in the beginning of that book, he has a illustration that I've, I've, I've ripped off before, but I'm going to rip it off again. It's really great. And this is what he says. He talks about plausibility structures. And he says, most people don't make information, don't make uh, changes to what they believe based just off solely on facts. People think they do, but they don't. He says, generally, being part of a community that believes something has a big impact on what you believe. And he gives this illustration. If you walked into a room and it was a bunch of your closest friends, and if one of them said, hey, I, was, I saw a UFO, came down in my yard, it abducted me, Right, whole thing. You would go, okay, dude, take your meds. If two of them said that, <clears throat> you'd go, that's weird. They're two crazy people? At somewhere, though, you would cross the threshold. If you walked into a room of people you knew well and people that you trusted, and 30 of them said the exact same story, we all saw this UFO, you would have to at least go, maybe they saw a UFO. You couldn't just write it off completely because you trust the community and you don't think the community would lie to you. That's called a plausibility structure. Communities, being part of a community helps people make big life decisions and make big changes. Here, Peter is employing this. He's saying, look guys, I know this sounds crazy because Jewish people didn't believe, they believed in a resurrection, and this is N.T. Wright's book. He goes into very specific details about this, but he says Jewish people believed in resurrection at the end of time. No Jewish person until these disciples came along ever had the audacity to say somebody was resurrected in the middle of history. It was a crazy thing for any of them to think. And so they're standing here in front of this massive crowd and they're preaching this story. And what they're saying is, trust us, because there's 120 of us here and we all saw it happen. We are eyewitnesses of this. But the resurrection is not the end of the story. Then there's the exaltation. That's why Jesus is not here to tell you about this right now himself. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you uh, yourselves are seeing and hearing. Right, so now he says Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. The word exalted means uh, lifted up. And I think Peter means it in two different senses. In one sense, he actually was lifted up, like he went into the clouds. But in another sense, he was lifted up as in his position was elevated. And he sits at the right hand of God, the position of glory. He, like, he got a promotion, you could say. Right? And there he is at the right hand of God. Um, uh, here we go. Wait, let's keep going. Uh, verse 34. Oh, wait, sorry. Let me jump back. I missed something here. Um, so he's, he's at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he's poured out uh, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Jesus received the Spirit during his life and ministry. We talked about this. He walked around like a regular guy who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He worked all of these miracles and all the stuff that he did as a human being in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And then when he left, he gave that spirit to his people. That's what Pentecost was. Jesus was giving the Holy Spirit to his disciples, but he, he was passing on something that they had lived with through him. Right? He had had that spirit for years. The spirit was working in his own life, and now he's working in the lives of the disciples. And then he gets into another psalm here. He quotes another psalm. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this quote is from Psalm 110.1. And this is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Isn't that weird? You think it would be something from Isaiah about the suffering servant or something, but it's this. And Jesus, if you remember, quoted this in Luke 20. Do you remember at the end of, uh, right there in the middle of Holy Week, he was doing that theological rap battle with all the, um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were arguing theology, and the crowd was deciding who was going to win. And in the middle of that, Jesus brings up this quote from Psalm 110. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make uh, your enemies your footstool. Now, what's going on in this psalm is... Uh, that David overhears a conversation in heaven. And he hears one guy that's his descendant. And he says, the Lord says to my Lord. So that's the father says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, basically. And Jesus asked this question. If the Messiah was just some guy and a descendant of David, why would David call him my Lord? And the implication is he has to be more than just a human being. And then Peter picks up the same psalm and quotes it in a similar way. And he says what David, did, what David envisioned there, that the Messiah who was more than just some guy, the Messiah sitting with the Lord at his right hand, sitting with the God the Father at the right hand, Peter says that that's happening right now. That's where Jesus is because he's been ascended into heaven. And then our last verse for today. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Okay, look at the two sides of that, right? That juxtaposition. He was crucified by you turkeys, by the way. You guys did it. So this is the thing. This crowd was the same crowd. They would have come down for Pentecost. I'm sorry, for Passover. They would have stayed for a month and a half. <coughs> and then they would have stayed for Pentecost. So Peter is literally yelling at the crowds that were there in Jerusalem when all of this happened. And so he says, look, this Jesus that you crucified, God has made him Lord in Christ. So Lord meaning he's in charge. Christ is the Greek version of the word Messiah, which is the Savior, the anointed one. And what Peter says is that I want you to know, I want you to know for certain that this is what's going on. And then next week, what we're going to read is the response, how Peter calls them to respond. But for today, I want to stop here, and I want to look at this sermon. Now, uh, this is good. So uh, I think I can look around and see everybody here knows what Pabst Blue Ribbon is, or Pabst Pathway. So I can skip the part where it says explain the Pabst Blue Ribbon Pathway in my notes. What I want you to see today is that our Pabst Blue Ribbon Pathway thingy uh, I'll put it right there, <clears throat> is uh, it's not like the formula. It's not the only way to do this. But the principles behind the Pabst Blue Ribbon Pathway are all over the New Testament. Okay, And we can see them even here in this passage. So this is how we're going to close in the next just couple of minutes here. This will be real quick. 
I want to go through this and I want to ask the question, how did this work in our sermon, right? So the first is, let's ask, how did prayer work into what we saw today? Uh, in Acts 1.14, if we jump back a little, all these were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So this whole group was praying. Pentecost happened at a prayer meeting, okay? They weren't at a Super Bowl party, as fun as that is, especially since the Niners are probably going to make the Super Bowl and then win it this year. Wow, jinxer, huh? Jinxed it. Um, <clears throat> right, they weren't at dinner. What were they doing? They were at a prayer meeting. Prayer in Pabst, we have to, there's a reason that it's first, uh, because Pabst starts with a P. But also, we just got lucky, because I think prayer is the starting point for the whole Pabst Blue Ribbon Pathway. Prayer acknowledges that this whole process of people coming to faith happens because God works, not because we work. He works through us, but it's his power that, it's, that it happens with, right? What's, our, what's the most important verse in the book of Acts? Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, sorry, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Right? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So the power always comes from the Spirit. And if the power doesn't come from us, then maybe we need to do less planning and maybe we need to do more praying for our past people. Right? Because that's how this started. So we see that. I'm going to put that slide up here. We see that here. Okay, the next in our past pathway is asking. P-A. And um, asking in the past pathway, we have to be good listeners. We have to build real relationships and we have to actually understand the people that we're talking to and that we're investing in. See, what we don't want to do is be the kind of people who have conversations where we wait for somebody to stop talking so we can get in our gospel pitch. That's a horrible way to do this. We have to actually be good listeners to the point where people go, remember we talked about this before, but when somebody says, man, that person is really interesting, almost always the reason is because they didn't say very much. And they just let you talk about yourself because you think you're interesting, right? That's what we have to do. We have to be those kind of listeners. Now let's talk about asking in our passage. <coughs> it's a little different because this was a group project. But if the point of asking is to understand the people that we're talking to, then we can see that Peter had a pretty good grasp on this because Peter knew his audience. He knew that they were devout Jewish folks because they were at the temple for Pentecost um, from all over the world. And these are folks who spent time and money and energy uh, to be here. These were faithful followers of Yahweh. And so how did he approach them? He didn't approach them like Paul does in the book of Acts when he gets to Athens. And when Paul gets to Athens, he starts quoting Greek prophets, right? But Peter didn't get up here and he start quoting Greek prophets because that they would have been upset. This wouldn't have reached these people. He looks at the people in front of him and he goes, look at all these Jewish folks from all over the world. These are devout Jewish people here for Pentecost. How are we going to do this? You know what? I'm going to build a sermon on the book of Joel, on a passage from the book of Joel. And he did that because he knew that's how they would respond. And then while he was preaching, he throws in some, uh, some psalms, two different psalms, right? And to build his points. And so the point isn't that we need to use scripture exactly like Peter did. We're going to talk about that more later on down the road. But the point is, Peter understood the common ground with his audience. And that's the point of asking people questions, to understand them better, to find common ground, and to be able to have these conversations. 
Okay, the third one is blessing. Pray, ask, bless. Blessing, this is, okay, this is a pastor's stretch. Every now and again, we get to stretch things, you know what I mean? Uh, where we got to make it fit because of the, the, the acronym is already there. Um, so I'm just telling you up front, so you don't have to go home and go, boy, that was a stretch. I'm telling you, yeah, it was a stretch. But here's how we're going to stretch it, okay? Um, the point of blessing is to knock walls down. People build walls in their lives. Everybody around you has walls up. And sometimes they will let people through different parts of those walls. But very rarely, do, you know, have you ever seen like um, uh, those medieval castles that had different layers to them? You know, they do this in fantasy books a lot, but this was actually a thing in medieval castles where you would have kind of the keep or whatever, the big castle in the middle at the top of the hill. There'd be a wall around that. And then that wall would have a wall around it. And then that wall would have a wall around it. And then, you know, so the enemy would have to break through various walls. That's kind of how everybody lives. Um, like Minas Tirith from uh, Lord of the Rings, by the way. You know, this, okay, uh, that could take the rest of my time. But the point is, people have these walls up. And the point of blessing people is to break down those walls so that we can create opportunities to then share our life story and to talk about the gospel. Right? So the question is, in our text, how do we see walls broken down? This was a group project, so it wasn't like a blessing. Like we would normally say, in our culture, blessing people in ways nobody else would is going to tear down those walls. In this culture, I mean, in this instance, something else broke the walls down, and it wasn't blessing. What was it? Take a shot. What's that? Yeah, the tongues, right? These people walked in, and they heard the, the, the Spirit. They saw something of the falling of the Spirit with these people, and they heard their own languages when they weren't expecting to. And all of a sudden, all the walls fell down. So that when Peter got up and then he preached, they were, we'll read next week, they were cut to the heart is what it says. Okay, so that's blessing again. That was a stretch, but you get where I'm going with this. The third one is the easiest one. Share your story, right? In our text, this is very clear how Peter does this. He gets up and he says, look, this is what Jesus did. Oh, and by the way, I saw the whole thing. I was there for all of it except that part where I ran away for the crucifixion. But I saw the rest of it, is what Peter says. They were eyewitnesses. And I love the, um, the two things. Peter says, I'm an eyewitness of this, and I'm telling you so you can be sure. You can trust my testimony. Okay, one thing we want to avoid when we're doing our Pabst Blue Ribbon Pathway is the very modern, I want you to figure out what works for you. Right? What we're doing with the Paps Blue Ribbon Pathway is we're telling people, I am 100% confident that this gospel stuff is what works for everybody. And I know because I've experienced it, and I'm part of a community that has experienced it. And then the last one is talk about the gospel. This is actually the easiest one. We don't really have to get into this because the whole sermon was the gospel. You guys are a bunch of sinners. You killed Jesus. Now turn to him for salvation. Right? I mean, that's... This was a very good gospel pitch tailored towards the audience, right? He covered all the stuff, sin and brokenness, redemption. There was a focus on Jesus. This is one of the things that I think we need to think about too, is with the sharing of our own stories and the talking about the gospel in our past stuff, those last two, we need to make sure that when that conversation is over, that Jesus is the hero of the story, not you, right? One of the things when... Like, uh, we're going to do membership probably next year, hopefully. Um, 
we're, we're working, I'm working on it. It's a slow process. But one of the things to become a member of church is we're all going to kind of write out our stories, how we came to faith. I want you to start thinking about that. Because one of the things I don't want to do is put in a bunch of members whose stories start like this. Well, I've been going to church since. I don't care. There's a lot of people that are not saved who go to church since whenever. Right? What I want to hear is how you were broken, how Jesus snatched you out of the pit of hell, and then how slowly he's putting you back together as you war with sin and as you try to be a part of the kingdom and share the gospel and how you struggle through this life until you reach eternity. That's what we want to hear. Those are the kind of stories we want to tell. Peter does a really good job of having that kind of certainty here, right? There's no what works for you kind of garbage here. This is all Peter is very, mm, like this is how it is. And so the application for this then is don't, is not uh, feel guilty and go do paps better than you've been doing it. That's not the application of this. The application is be encouraged, right? This Peter was just like some guy who was a fisherman, and can I be honest, from the times we see him fish without miracles, not even a good fisherman, <laughs> right? He was just some guy, and Jesus filled him with the Spirit, and look at him now, right? This is what church has been doing for 2,000 years. This is what the people of God do. <clears throat> we live in a world, in the world, but as citizens of a different kingdom, and we're so blown away by grace the way Peter was blown away by grace. And we're so filled with the Spirit that worship pours out of us, that love and mercy and grace pour out of us, and that the people around us see that and are touched by the Lord that we serve. It's not a very complicated, uh, it's not a very complicated uh, formula, right? This is what we do. Paps, we pray for people, we ask them about their lives, and we try to be the best listeners in the whole world. We bless them in ways nobody else would. We try to be the most loving people in the whole world. We share our stories because we've been touched by grace. And then we talk about how that actually works. And then that's my transition into next week's sermon. Next week's sermon is how does salvation actually happen? How does it actually work? So until then, I just want you to leave being encouraged that this stuff that we're writing in our journals and we're trying to do and we're doing well sometimes, and we're not doing well other times. This is the stuff that Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. And because Christians have been doing it for 2,000 years, there are billions of us all over the planet. And there's going to be billions of us in heaven worshiping the Lord. And so I want you to leave just going, yeah, that's what we do. And it's all in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not in my power. It's because he's great, not because I am. Amen? All right, let's, uh, let's close and pray.